you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them open to John chapter 16. We'll continue our study through, through John in a moment. First, before we go there, let me give you a, a quick, quick update on our follow campaign. We'll be doing these sporadically, but since last week was, we said let's have our gifts in to see where we are. I want to give you an update on where we, where we are. You'll know just by way of review, and if you're a guest, um, we're, you, know, you can see what we're about right now and what we've been doing is uh, we've, we've embarked upon what we believe the Lord is leading us to do in this season, and that is some, some facility needs that we have at Brentwood we want to finish. And for us in our Franklin campus, y'all, it's, it's you and I being out of leased space in a permanent location. It is a $30 million project. Um, you know, in God's kindness, we, we talked about the fact that $15 million is is there, and then we, as a community of faith, Brentwood and Franklin, we said we need to raise the additional $15 million toward that. We've spent a, a, a good amount of time on it. Last week, we announced to you that, um, and it was just like that Saturday night, we hit $12 million, 480 families. Amazing that uh, we are there. Um, I do want to say to you, it's a... You know, I was at Brentwood, Rob was here, but you know, I, I looked through Congregation Brentwood and said, you know, what this is, this is this is this is twelve million green lights. We're going. <laughs> We're doing this. And and I assure you, we are. And Lord Lord willing, with process, you know, processes we have to go through the city or whatever, in three years, y'all, we, you and I, will be walking onto a campus over in Lewisburg Pike. Now here's what I here's here's what I hope for all of you. I don't want any of you to miss out on it. Not walking into the property but being a part, and, and, and I mean this when I say it, it's not even about the amount of money you give, it's that you, you give, you participate and be a part. Our goal is 700 families, as of today, last week it was 480, as of today we're at 572, got 120 something families that haven't stepped in, we just, we just want to invite you in, because I want you to walk onto that property knowing I'm a, I, I am a part of this, and again it's not the amount, it's the participation. From last Sunday to this Sunday, we went from 480-572. We went from 12 million to 13.2 million. Yeah, you can clap on that. Y'all, put in your head a a $30 million project, 28.2 is there. That's why I say it's 28 million green light. We're going, you know, and we're going to trust the Lord. We'll be providing that. So we can celebrate in that, and I want to encourage you to be prayerful about your own participation if you have not yet. John chapter 16. Here in the front of my Bible, I keep a card. Uh, I did this, I started this just maybe just under a year ago. You know, I'd have people that would have prayer requests, um, and I would either, either in my personal circle of influence, or it could be you talking to me after a service, whatever it may be. And uh, I would have trouble kind of keeping up. And, you know, when I say to someone I want to pray for it, I really do want to do that. And oftentimes I can forget. And so I started writing names down. You can't see the names from where you are here, but this is just a note card. I've got some names written. I've got some scratched out. You know, I don't put a lot of details on the prayer request here. I just write the name. Probably a year, year and a half ago, Lisa and I were on a call the midwife binge, and I, I noticed how the, the, the ladies would pray in their evening compline. I'm, I'm not familiar with that, you know, stream, but it was just, they, I just loved it how they would, 
have these prayers and, and they would just say, Lord, have mercy and grace upon or something short. And they would just name these things. And I thought, you know, that's one way I could pray for people when I, you know, can't go into tons of detail per se. So that's what this is. It's a list. And y'all, I, I can tell you, I, I pray for this regularly because I, I just say, the, I say, Lord, grace and mercy, your hand upon. And then I just start n- naming the names. And when I say the name, it's like it comes back to me, what's going on in their world, what's going on in their life. If these names represented literal weight, like pounds, I wouldn't be able to hold this card in my hand. The weight on, this is just mine. <laughs> you know, this is just me and the people around me. But the weight of loss, and the weight of pain, the, right, the weight of sorrow, sadness, and challenge represented here is, is beyond me holding were it literal weight. This morning we get to this part of the upper room discourse, Jesus in his most personal conversation with his disciples. And Jesus is going to speak this morning of joy. A joy that can never be taken away. Of a joy that's indestructible. And you might go, and so why are you talking about a weight of loss and sorrow that's hard to lift? Well, because, as we'll see in this passage, Jesus, as he speaks of joy, speaks of sorrow and loss and sadness in the same breath. There's a mystery here that I can't fully grasp, but we'll seek to unpack it as we move through our text today. There is some misconceptions around joy. I would, you know, and it's maybe overly simplistic, but you could say there's this, there's a worldly joy or joy as the world defines it here. And there's what I would call biblical joy or joy as Jesus defines it. They're very different. If I took the joy as the world defines joy, I I would describe it metaphorically as a, as a puddle after a rain. You know, there, there it is. There's a puddle. Don't step in it. Go back an hour later, there it isn't. It's gone. If I, if I spoke of the joy, and we'll talk about this, biblical joy or the joy as Jesus defines it, I, the, med, the picture that comes to my mind would be the ocean. Oh, there it is. It's deeper than you'll ever be able to go. It's more than you'll ever comprehend, and it's always there. Two different joys. Trust the joy, trust joy as the world defines it, and your hope will be fleeting. Rest in the joy as Jesus defines it, and, and your hope will stand even when your world is falling apart. So we'll cover verses 16 to 24. Biblical joy. Last week, Rob had 8 through 15, and just to get us contextually where we are, again, this is all one conversation in this meal that he has. Rob talked about the the Spirit's relationship to the world, how the Spirit is always at work in the world, and in the text itself, convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And and the way Rob unpacked that word convicting, I I, I so appreciated it, because we kind of have this certain weight that we put on convicting, you know, Rob described it this way, it means that the Spirit is always proving what is incorrect 
what is wrong with the wisdom and values of the world by explaining what is true about Jesus. I always explain what's true about Jesus. And it's kind of that same thing that we're going to hit here. Jesus is explaining what's true about biblical joy. I've got two parts to the message, in, um, two parts to this, these texts. The first, I'm simply calling it a state of confusion and fear. A state of confusion and fear. Um, if you've ever read Jesus' words and, and thought to yourself, I, am not, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> that's confusing to me. Jesus, you're not making much sense. It, it, take heart because that's exactly where the disciples are. Think about it. Those who were with him for three years, those who are around the table talking, they didn't get it either. And that's where our text begins today, a state of confusion and fear. Follow along in your Bibles, verses 16 through 19. Jesus continues the conversation, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father, that's referencing verse 10. There Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean? Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Frederick Bruner writes of this particular text, and it makes me smile as he said this because I was feeling it. He says, At first hearing, this is the longest and unintentionally, but literally almost the most amusing passage in the gospel, repeating the same two quizzical sentences over and over and over again. <laughs> and, and don't you get it? Because it, it's like, Jesus said, a little while you won't see me, but in a little while you'll see me. And the disciples looked at each other and said, what does he mean by a little while we won't see him? And a little while he won't. And then Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. A little while. And then you just kind of go, why do you guys keep saying this? It's all, it, it is almost amusing, and I like the way he says it, because it's so darn serious. It's almost amusing. We have to keep in mind that for the disciples, Jesus' death on a cross, his burial, were unthinkable. Like, like there's, there's no category that can hold it. Because it's, it's easy for us to go, I don't know why you guys don't get this. Well, I can tell you why they don't get it. Because there's no category for them. If you think of historic history, t- timeline, you go before the cross, then there's the cross, and then there's after the cross. And we stand on this side of the timeline and we look back and say, hey, I get what he's, I get it. But you understand, they're standing on this side <clears throat> and for thousands of years, they're waiting on the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will come and rescue them. There is no category for, and he'll hang on a cross and die. It'd be like, it'd be like telling you know, the pilgrims when they landed Plymouth Rock, hey, you know, one day your descendants are going to come over from over there, but they're going to come through the sky in a tube with wings like a bird. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. You know, we don't understand. I mean it. They don't understand it. And so we need to, you know, I come to the passage with great grace and 
and, and, and going, well, well, how, many, how much do I not understand when Jesus tells me something? Jesus was, he did say it, three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Literally, he says, the son of man must suffer many things, be killed, and after three days rise. And he said it. In John's gospel, Mary pours the ointment on him, you know, so much the disciples are upset. He says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. They can't see it right now, okay? But I'm telling you, they, they, they will. And, and what they can't see is actually contained in that little phrase that he mentions in verse 10, because I go to the Father, and then he says it, they say it again. He keeps saying, because I go to the Father, and they don't get it. Rob covered this last week. So this is just brief review, but it's, it, it doesn't take much. When he says, because I go to the Father, he is describing what's about to happen before he then ascends to the Father. And what's about to happen is his arrest, he's convicted unjustly, he's beaten and persecuted, he's nailed to a cross, he's dead, and he's buried. That's what's about to happen. And when that happens, they won't see him. Okay? That's, that's what it, they won't, in a little while, you won't see me. Because all this is going to happen. But then in another little while, you're going to see me. <laughs> what, ha- what happens that they now see him after another little while? You can say it's not a trick question. What happens? He raises from the grave. So you know what I'm saying? So this is the little while, little while in the text. There's also, I just want to say, I do think there's a broader application, which would be when Jesus ascends to the Father, we don't see him. We don't see him. There's a period of time we live in when he's ascended before he comes back. That's really a little time. You go, Lord, it's been thousands of years. Yeah, it's a little time in light of eternity. And even those who... You know, the apostles and the early Christians, they expected him to come at any moment. You know, they were expecting him to come back. So you can see it in that context too. But really, most agree that the immediate application is the cross, the crucifixion, and the death of Jesus. I want you to, 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 to note here, it, Jesus is describing his absence. And, and it's what happens during that absence that is so important. In fact, what happens during his absence is necessary for them and for us to receive what our hearts most desperately long for. To be back in a right relationship with God. To have our sins forgiven. To be clothed in Christ's righteousness. <laughs> that requires his absence. For a little while. And I, and I want to say this. I think by way just of application maybe. Is when, Jesus, when, when we're confused by Jesus' words. And when we're confused by what Jesus is doing in our life. In any moment in time. I want to say just the same way that they didn't get it. And you and I are going trust him. You can trust Jesus. Listen you guys. you can tr-. The same is true for you and I. Whatever's going on in your world right now. And you're kind of going. Listen to me, I don't get it. You can always know 
It is for your good and his glory. No exceptions. Well, we're going to hold this truth here as we see what Jesus, uh, he says next about biblical joy. So if the, if the first part of the passage, I, I gave it that title, A State of Confusion and Fear, I'm going to give this to the second one. Just, I'm just going to call it a state of sorrow and joy. A state of sorrow and joy. Look at verses 20 to 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, be turn, will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no, longer, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Rob's going to pick up, by the way, 23 and 24 next week, and unpack around this, the, the prayer and what this talking about praying in my name I, I, I grab it now just to get to that point where he says your joy will be full I'm going to have, have you turn your attention up to the side screens and, and I, wanna, I want you to see something and, and um, I want you to see the text maybe in a little bit of a different way and I want you to imagine I'm going to draw this I want you to imagine you know, um, a, a ledger. And on one side of the ledger, we have a, a little while. Okay, I'm going to call this a little while A. Because on the other side of the ledger, we have a, a little while. But I'm going to call this a little while B. Does that make sense? And when you read the passage, it, it really does fall into this ledger account in the sense of on the left side, he says in a little while, A, you're going to have um, weeping, lament, and sorrow. By the way, I call these the, the trinity of despair. This is, this, is, this is what you have when all you were hoping for does not come to pass. This is what you feel when your marriage is crumbling. When the doctor's visit turns into surgery, chemotherapy. When you don't have the money. When your child rejects faith. When relationships are broken. When dementia begins to take hold and Alzheimer's becomes a part of your story. When death intrudes and depression falls upon us. You know, we could add other words here. 
mourning, grief, sadness, all part of the our fallenness in the fallen world. On the right side, he says, okay, in a little while this. <laughs> but then he says, in a little while this. What? Well, th- y'all, this is, this is once again. You know what's so funny about this? Nothing. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but is it, it happens, and we all go, Lloyd, is it you? Is it what? Whatever. Here, and, and the good news is, and this, is that Karen so wisely actually has these slides with these words so you can see this is it. You can see that's not my handwriting actually, but it's there just because that happened before. Um, On the right side, you have another little while. And this one, you have joy. (laughs) Joy. Go ahead, you can go to the other one. Go to the other one. Joy. Go to the one that's got them all written in. It'll save me time. Joy, joy. There you go, joy, joy, rejoice, joy made full, gladness. But you see that, what, what a contrast, what, what a, I mean, it's almost like opposites, right? And by the way, in that first little while, while the disciples are, 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 are sorrowful, what does it say the world is doing? What is it, the ta- they're rejoicing. See, the world and the ruler of this world now, Satan is rejoicing because they have, we have our man, we're going to kill him, we're going to get rid of him and get rid of all this. You know, I've started to write up at the top a, a, a way to think about um, time in history because this, this will help us when we think of this. When the Bible speaks of how history unfolds, it speaks of this age, okay? There is this age. And then it speaks of a time when Jesus comes back Jesus returns, and he inaugurates what the Bible writers speak of as the age to come. There's an age to come. And by the way, this age has a terminal point. The age to come goes on forever. So when we think about biblical joy, Jesus, Jesus is speaking about a little while you're going to have this and a little while you're going to have this. I want to suggest that when we talk about um, biblical joy versus the world's definition of joy. The world's definition of joy says you've got to get rid of all of this in order to have joy. So, and what, how do we get rid of those things? We either deny them, we bury them, we ignore them. I don't know. We buy a lot of stuff to cover it up. We have experiences, like bucket list experiences, to not think about those and just be happy. I don't know if you're, so that's what the world would say is joy. But I want to suggest what Jesus is saying, and I think the scriptures say this through and through, is that in this age, okay, biblical joy is all of this. This is biblical joy. You say, well, how can it be joy when there's weeping there? Because Jesus says that that's true. And, and experience tells us this, doesn't it? I, let's be honest. Have you ever had a moment of joy that was without some echo of sorrow 
or loss or pain. Because if, if you do, I, I'm not even sure what planet, I don't know that you live on this planet in a fallen body. There's always sorrow and hurt and loss. This is kind of maybe a little cheesy, but, but it's also I want you to see, because this is the point of the passage, I think. What happens between this little while and that little while is what we know as the cross of Christ. And I think this is absolutely what enables the first little while and the second little while to exist. And for you and I to have joy because it's rooted in the cross of Christ. And that even in this fallenness of a body in a fallen world, when, when we, we can have joy because Christ has secured what we need most such that even death can't take it away. When Jesus says, your joy can never be removed when it's centered and resting on the cross of Christ. If you're looking for a joy in which this doesn't exist, you will not find it in this life. But if you are looking for a joy that's rooted in the cross, you can know that even while this is true, the joy of the cross transcends it. And there's coming a day when Jesus returns and this will be no more. And this will be our joy forever and ever and ever. And can I say this? Whether the Lord tarries another 2,000 years in comparison to eternity, this age is just a little while. Your life and my life in this age is just a little while. <laughs> it's a tiny while. Let me give you three principles or observations, if I may. Think about applications. The first is this. I'll throw them up on the screen. Karen will put them up there for us. Biblical joy does not replace Sorrow, it transcends and transforms it. See, biblical joy, it's not like, okay, no sorrow. It's just joy. No, it transcends the pain and sorrow. And we see this most clearly in the illustration Jesus gives. You know, Rob and I will give illustrations sometimes, and we'll say, you know, I can't stretch the illustration too far, or it's almost a good illustration, but this part doesn't work. Jesus' illustrations are perfect. When a woman's giving birth, at the hour of birth, pain is overwhelming, anguish is real. Then when the baby breathes its first breath of you know, you know, air oxygen uh, and cries, she holds the baby in her arms and, 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 and joy, it's like joy lifts her above the pain, transcends the pain. And the reality is the pain's still there, but the joy of this child transcends the pain. Is, which is exactly what happens in our text. That which causes her pain, the baby, is that which brings her joy. You see the mystery in that? Which takes me to the second point. Biblical joy finds its source and sustenance in the cross. What I've been saying, what I've drawn. 
The very thing that causes the disciples pain is what? The cross. He's dead. He's gone. It's over. See, that causes such pain. But it's the very thing which brings them great joy. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. He secures a right standing with a holy God. He clothes us in his righteousness by his death on the cross. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's hyperbole. Because he, he decided to know a lot among them. He had a lot to teach them. <laughs> but he speaks in hyperbole to make the point, everything I teach you, understand this, nothing is more important than the cross. Everything I do have to teach you about the Christian life, about salvation, that's so important, it's all rooted in the cross. You see, that's why he says that. I like the way Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, former Archbishop, said, I'll put it on the screen because he says it so well, so it's not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but the sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block, which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by a subsequent victory. It is itself the triumph. What was the devil's worst? Death has become God's best. In this way, y'all, we can say it this way. Whenever you think of joy, the question is never how much. How much joy do you have? It's never how much. It's always on what basis your joy. On what basis your joy. See, and in this way, in the fallenness of life, and even in our sorrows, in our sadness, there's genuine joy. Why? Not because there's an amount, but because on what basis your joy, the cross of Christ and Christ alone. Last thing, joy is not simply an emotion or an attitude, but a person. This shouldn't shock us. It doesn't always come back to Jesus. In our, t in our context, Jesus has been speaking about the Spirit. Five times he mentions the Spirit. He says, I've got to, you know, it's to your advantage I leave. And they're going, no, it's not. You need to stay. No, it's your advantage I leave, i.e., go to the Father, i.e., the cross, burial, resurrection. It's to your advantage because then I send the Spirit. And we've been through this and we'll, be through it. We'll, we'll spend the rest of our lives exploring the mysteries. And His Spirit comes and the Spirit lives in us and that's Jesus in us, the Spirit of Christ in us. And then when Paul unpacks the Spirit, he speaks of what the Spirit produces in a life. What is the life of Je How does the life of Jesus come out of us? He says it this way in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the second? Joy. It's Jesus in us. I said if, I, if, if this, if this were, were weighted, I wouldn't be able to hold the weight of the of the sorrow on this card. But I can also tell you when I read these names and I'm praying for them, there's joy in this card too. Why? Because of the cross of Christ. 
in every one of these situations. I'm going to ask you to just think about this for a moment. Let's talk about, so what does that mean to me? I'm going to invite you to take the Lord's table elements because we're going to spend our application time holding these elements in our hand. If you didn't get the elements and you want to step back and grab them in the foyer, please do that. If, you know, if you've pushed your, put your faith in Christ, then this table is for you. You're a guest. It's his table. You're welcome at his table. Go ahead and take the, the bread out and take the cup and if you would remove the, the top. So you're holding the bread and the cup in your hands. And I want our moment of application, you know, where we say, okay, that's what the text says, that's what it means. Now, what does it mean to me? You know, how, how do I apply it? I want to take these moments with you holding these in your hand. Why? Because I want us thinking about our application in the context of the cross. And you do know when we hold the bread and the cup in our hands week by week, we're going to the cross. That's where we go as we hold these. And so I'm just going to let you sit, have a conversation with God, talk to, talk to the Lord, invite the Spirit to lead you. You can reflect upon these points I've made. There may be something else the Spirit has said to you this morning that's requiring a step of faith, that's requiring your trust. I'll invite you in these moments to listen to that voice and trust Him. Would you do that now? Father, there is such mystery here in Jesus' words. And the true nature of joy that he secures. Surely our Lord was never without the fullness of joy, and yet he bore scars on his body and on his heart as those who he's speaking to right now abandon him in just a few moments. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you secured our joy by your death and resurrection at great cost to yourself. And each week as we come to this table, we're reminded we're at the cross. We're there where your body was broken and your blood was poured out and we're remembering it. Not just an intellectual remembering but a spiritual remembering wherein by your spirit our trust deepens in that cross in what you did in your complete obedience on our behalf and so we say thank you as we receive these elements receive the bread first
this cup, we are proclaiming your death because your blood was poured out. We remember it. Some 2,000 years ago, it happened. But you tell us that every time we take the cup, we're proclaiming that you're coming again one day. And so our eyes go there as well, and we are hopeful. Thank you, Jesus. Receive the cup. Let's stand together. Song of response. Brian chose this song, which I find so appropriate. That in our sadness and sorrow, we hold our joy and the cross holds these together. And we're mindful that this is, in a sense, an alien joy because it's secured outside of us, isn't it? And the words will sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You see, you could put that statement on everything. Yet not I, but through Christ Jesus, through what you've done, I can rest in this joy. This is true. And this is our song.